Good morning. I just want to go on record as saying when I was in high school, I took a um, home ec type of class, except it was on living, family living, and I had to actually sew a t-shirt. So I have some experience, not quite, not quite the quilting thing, but um, thanks for what you do. I love that. Um, sometimes when we're singing, you know, songs, especially that we know, every once in a while I get struck by a new line, or not a new line, but it strikes you new, and um, singing Be Thou My Vision, I feel such a deep longing to, may I know heaven's joys, the line that we sung this morning, Um, not just here, but looking forward to the day when, especially when we look around our world, as has been already pointed out on a couple times here, of just the destruction and the power of evil, um, and how grievous it is to our hearts, even when it's uh, miles and miles away from where we live, Um, but I long for the day when God truly does set things right, and it's coming, and I'm glad for that. A common response to someone's inquiry as to whether they can help in some way is often, thanks, but we already have what we need. You ever heard that before? You go to ask somebody, hey, can I bring a meal, or can I do something? And people typically can respond, well, thanks, we already have what we need. Um, That's a modern-day translation of what Peter is going to say to us in his second epistle. But before we get there, I want to see if we can establish a reality that I think is true, at least in my heart, and I suspect in yours, certainly in most people that I talk to. Here it is, that just beneath the surface of our conscience is a feeling of inadequacy. Sometimes we're keenly aware of it, while much of the time that it goes unnoticed. We don't feel like we have what we need for life, especially in the most pronounced area, which I think is the relational sphere. Do you feel like you know how to love your spouse well when he or she is discouraged or angry or upset about something? Do you feel like you know the exact words to say? Do you have confidence as to what to say when difficult issues arise with your children or with a friend who might be despairing over life? Do you sense the wisdom and strength to navigate your own battles with doubt or fear or futility? Life, it seems to me, on a nearly daily basis presents us opportunity to feel inadequate. (laughs) Um, Relationships are the place where we feel our greatest threat and where we feel our deepest sense of inadequacy, I would say, as I think about my own life or talk to others, might even use the word incompetency. Of course, to avoid such feelings, we typically sidestep difficult circumstances, right? That present the possibility of exposure of that inadequacy that we can feel. And we gravitate towards places where we feel competent. After Peter's colossal failure of his self-confident, pronounced loyalty to Jesus, where was it that Jesus found him? Remember? Fishing. What was Peter before he was a disciple? He was a fisherman. We go back to what we're good at. When life knocks us upside the head and we don't feel like we know what we're doing. Tried that disciple thing and it didn't work too well. Let me go back to fishing. When we were first married, which, let me be self-promotional for a moment. That was 40 years ago today. (laughs) 
I don't feel very proud. I feel grateful that God has given me someone to walk this life with. And you might be asking, why are you here speaking today? (laughs) To which I would say, uh, we've got a trip planned in a couple weeks. Um, But I digress. When we were first married, every time Carla was um, frustrated or might get upset about something, do you know what would go on inside of me? 21 years old. I grew up in a family that didn't acknowledge our anger and we called that godliness which is anything but. Um, Carla, on the other hand, grew up in a family where their anger was a little more expressive and out there. And so when our two worlds collided and she was frustrated about something in life or perhaps with me, uh, I found myself wanting to go play basketball. I know what I'm doing on the basketball court. I didn't have a clue what to do with her. I think that's this sense of inadequacy that we can so quickly feel. Another story, just to make my point, years ago when we were in Indiana, we lived in a house for nearly 30 years. It was built in 1930, and it had a lot of character. One of the character points was the front door, a round front door with an opening mechanism that is not your typical hardware, not your typical doorknob. And so one day my sister-in-law was over, and she pulled the doorknob off the door. To me, it looked broken. And I'm somewhat mechanical, and so I put it in the drawer because there's two ways to open our front door. You could also stick your hand through the mail slot, turn the deadbolt, and it would pop open. And so literally for a year and a half, that's how we opened our front door. And then one day a friend came over and said, where's your doorknob? I said, it's in the drawer. It's broke. She said, let me see it. In five minutes, it was fixed. Imagine what I felt. I'd rather just not think about it. I'd rather shove it aside So what are we to make of the fact that the Apostle Peter writes words like this, given the inadequacy that I trust that you all understand what I'm saying, when he says this, His divine power, God's divine power, has granted us everything we need for life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him, Jesus, who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Words on the board over here. Seriously? We can be partakers of the divine nature. We literally have everything we need for life and godliness. Do you feel like you have everything you need for life and godliness? I don't. You know, emerge is the word that the speaking team has been using to guide our thoughts. And I would suggest that Peter is telling us that we can emerge. We can go forth into the world as God's representatives because we have what we need, even while we feel this deep sense of an inadequacy or insufficiency or choose whatever word fits you. I think one of the most profound struggles of the Christian life is living in the tension of two seemingly opposing forces. This being one of those. I have what I need. I feel inadequate. There was a man in the Gospels who communicated this very truth when he in the presence of Jesus. He said, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. Wait a minute. Wouldn't we say today you either believe or you don't believe? But in his soul, he believed, and yet there was a lot of unbelief. 
We're sinners, and yet we're saints. We desire to be kind and generous, and yet we find ourselves edgy and stingy. Part of maturity is embracing this tension from which we will not escape, trusting that God, through His Spirit, has given us everything we need. I don't know why, but a favorite quote of mine came to mind, and I'm not really sure how relevant it is to where I'm going, but because I like it so much, and every once in a while you stumble across an individual who puts words to something you feel that nobody else is really saying much of, and it's so helpful. And so this quote, put it up there. He says this. This is John Owen, who was a Puritan pastor, writer. He says, older, see if you resonate with this, older, more experienced Christians often have greater troubles, temptations, and difficulties in the world. Is that surprising? God has new work for them to do. He now plans that all the graces they have be used in new and harder ways. They may not find their spiritual desires to be as strong as before or have such delight in spiritual duties as they had before. Because of this, they feel that grace has dried up in them. They do not know where they are or what they are, but in spite of all this, the real work of sanctification is still thriving in them. And the Holy Spirit is still working effectively in them. God is faithful. Therefore, let us cling to our hope without wavering. I thought by now, age 61, that I would be beyond feeling inadequate. (laughs) Seems to be intensifying, actually. I've stood in front of people and preached for 30 plus years. And today, as I thought about doing this, I felt all kinds of emotions that made me just want to stop, quit. (laughs) What is this hope to which we cling? Could it be that God's power has given me, given you what we need, even though we feel terribly inadequate? Peter is offering us a profound truth, one that Marty has so eloquently foisted upon us in a good way the last few weeks, that God chooses to partner with us. And Peter is saying, you really can be a participant in the divine nature. You can be, in a sense, like God. How is that possible? Peter gives us our first 10 in verse 3. He says, his divine power, God's power through Jesus makes possible what before was not possible. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it in the, to the believers at Ephesus. Verse, chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead. In your trespasses, and I'm going to change the word sin to what I think it is at its core. You were dead in your trespasses and self-centeredness in which you once lived, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy and because of his great love, enlivened us together with Christ. This power, says Peter, enlivens us, setting us on a new and different trajectory with our lives. Something other than just living for the things of this life. Living for a good retirement. So I want to unpack this a little bit. We have everything we need for life and godliness. The word life. I don't think he's specifically addressing our common everyday coming and goings. Certainly that's included, but I think it's more than that. Some understand the idea here to be eternal life, but that phrasing has a lot of baggage, doesn't it? It's more than simply a ticket to heaven. 
Instead, Peter is talking about a way of living now that matters into eternity. That's what eternal life really means. A way of living now, right now, that matters into eternity. As the Apostle Paul sat in prison towards the end of his life, thinking about how he could encourage his son of the faith, Timothy, he writes to him in the first letter, chapter 6, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul is not referencing Timothy's final destination, eternal life, but he's saying to this pastor who's now starting his ministry in Ephesus, take hold of what matters. What matters to God? What really matters? Hearts and souls. Mine, yours, others around us. You have a purpose that matters now that gives meaning to your existence. Don't lose sight of that, Timothy. Don't lose sight of that. There was a period of time in which I was a Blue Bloods junkie. Anybody ever watched the TV show Blue Bloods? Come on, fess up. Okay. Tom Selleck plays the role of Frank Reagan, commissioner of the 35,000 member police force in New York City. And he discovers at one point in one episode, he discovers a priest who had been pulled over. Uh, he, this priest doubled as the chaplain for all the police officers. And he had been pulled over for a DUI and Reagan discovers eventually that it was fourth time that it had happened. The other three had been swept under the carpet because of his role with the police department. And so the fourth time it lands on the commissioner's desk and he goes to see the priest. And after some terse conversation, the commissioner looks at the priest in what I think is a powerful scene. And he says these poignant words to him, Jerry, man your post. I love that. Man your post. I think that's the idea behind Peter's revelation that we have what we need to man our post, whatever that looks like, wherever that's found. Man your post. And then the word godly, it doesn't mean that we do everything right or that we are without sin. Rather, it implies that it's possible, it's possible for us to choose to be godlike. We can actually be godlike. This means God has made it possible by the presence of his powerful spirit of wisdom for us to reflect him in this world. Especially amidst our hurts. Our difficult circumstances. Our failures. Something's been made possible that previously was not. A few weeks back when I spoke, I asked a rather, I think, important question. What's available to the believer... That's unavailable to a person who does not profess Christ as their Savior. And the short yet precise answer, I think, is the Spirit of a living God inside of us. You know, as I was pondering this whole thing about the ability to be a partaker of the divine nature, it occurred to me that back in the third page of the Bible, <laughs> Genesis chapter 3, that the fall of man happened because two people foolishly believed that they could be like God. That they could strike out on their own apart from God and be like Him. That was the temptation. And yet we arrive here at Peter and Peter is saying, it's now, it is possible for you to be God-like. <laughs> Not in independence, but in dependence. What you tried to do in independence is now available to you 
independence. That's crazy, isn't it? It's really possible for us to be like God. Consider what the triune God has actually accomplished for us. How is it possible that we could be partakers of the divine nature? How is it possible that we could actually live out of these promises that God has made? And what are these promises? Well, by God's divine power, because we, because we feel our inadequacy and know what's true when we look in the mirror, God's divine power has made it possible for us to work with Him. And I want to suggest there's three promises or three reasons why that's possible. And I want us to go to way back in the prophets to Ezekiel chapter 36. And you can put that on the screen for a moment. This is what God says. It's not for your sake that I'm about to act, says the Lord God. Probably a reference to the new covenant, which we will partake of right here at the table in a little bit. For I will sprinkle, says the Lord God, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart that's alive. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my laws. Three things I think we can take from these words that were spoken a long time ago. The first is this. We've been given a new heart. We have a new identity. Story has it that a young boy, age eight, true story as I understand it, lived in a really, really tension-filled home, screaming and fighting and desertion. And many nights when the, when the tension would grow so loud and strong and just shake him to his core, he would steal out of the house and he would go next door to his friend's house and he would hide in the bushes beneath the kitchen or the dining room window or the living room window sometimes and he would just listen to a family in a house that was filled with laughter and love. He would sit there for a long time, tears streaming down his face and one night unbeknownst to him, the father of that home found him out there doing that very thing. And he invited him in. He became part of that family of oneness and happiness and joy. That's what God has done for us. And all the brokenness of our lives and our inadequacy and our fallenness, he's saying, I'm going to give you a new identity. I'm going to give you a new heart. It's not just plastic surgery. It's something in the depths of our being that God has changed and he's made us lovers more than that he's made us sons and daughters the theme of adoption runs throughout all of the letters just about of the New Testament you are a son and a daughter and his Holy Spirit Romans 8 verse 16 I think it is where God says, my spirit's going to be there so that those days and times when you question and you're, you're prone to give in to fear because your failure and your inadequacy is so great, I'm going to put my spirit in you and he's going to remind you that you are a child of God. You are a son and daughter. So that your eyes can again go outward, not inward. What a God we have that every single thing that threatens 
to paralyze us, immobilize us, or defeat us, God has counteracted. When Jesus said that Satan is the father of the lies, how did God counteract that? I'll do one better. Rather than just somebody outside of you whispering lies, I will put my very voice, my very spirit inside of your being to remind you of what's true, despite what you feel. John Coe, who's a um, professor, I think, at Talbot or uh, works with um, counseling and all that field, he said one time, he said, hey, emotions are great indicators. They're lousy leaders. We feel our inadequacy. We feel our futility. We feel our despair. We feel our aloneness. We feel disrespected, unheard, whatever it may be. And if we allow those things to control us, I'm not suggesting we deny them. I'm suggesting that we bring them to God in a way that allows Him to remind us, let me tell you the truth. You are my son. You are my daughter. The ancients had a um, word for kind of what happened in the beginning back in Genesis. It was called a vassal representative. Have you ever heard that phrase? A vassal representative. When a king expanded his empire by conquering lands far from the epicenter, he sent a trusted individual to govern the land. That trusted individual had the heart of the king in mind. He knew what mattered to the king. And even though he was hundreds of miles away, and there was no airplane, there was no train, there was no way to get there quickly, he could trust that that individual would rule that land for the king. That's who we are. We're God's vassal representatives. Adam was, Eve was, we are. And we mess it all up and God says, it's okay. <laughs> I got a plan. <laughs> I'm going to give you everything you need for life and godliness. And it starts with a new identity. And the second thing we see in these words from Ezekiel is the fact that God has made us clean. I will sprinkle water on you and make you clean. Do you feel clean? What do you see when you look in the mirror? <laughs> what do you feel when you've just fought with your spouse or roommate or child? But the truth is, God has made us clean. <laughs> That's how he sees us through Christ. That's what his divine power has done. It's washed us. <laughs> and Paul reminds us in Colossians that there's no scorekeeping with God. There's no, no, nothing hanging over our heads. We live in a world where scorekeeping is the way it goes, right? We do it in our marriages. We do it in our friendships. We're always keeping score. Wait a minute, you're the one that bought lunch last time. It's my turn. <laughs> Wait a minute, I rubbed your feet the last three nights. It's your turn. And God says, none of that. None of that. You have a new purity. Not only do you have a new identity, but you have a new purity. And if we don't have to worry about cleaning ourselves up, then maybe we have a little energy left over to love. <laughs> and finally, he gives us a new disposition or energy. Ezekiel says, God has put his spirit in us to move us to obey and to love. I will give you my spirit and he will move you to follow my decrees. What's the heart of the law? When Jesus was asked, Love God and love others. This new disposition 
is that you are, in the depths of your soul, a lover of God and a love of others, even more than a sinner now. Sinner still? Sure. But the deepest reality of your redeemed heart is that you want to love. You want to join God in his divine nature and his divine purposes. And if we're not aware of this truth, that deeper than anything else is a desire to love and to be part of God's plan, then we haven't gone deep enough in our hearts. We don't know ourselves. We don't know what God has done in us. Ezekiel tells us that we have this new heart. The old way was beyond human repair. God has given us a heart transplant. So to participate in the divine nature and the promises of God is even to be like God. Why? Because we have a new identity. We're sons and daughters. We're ambassadors, vassal representatives in this world. We have a new purity. We're clean and free of guilt and pressure, no longer chained by the burden of fear. And we have a new disposition and energy from the Spirit of God to love and obey God and to join Him as we move in this world. All because of God's divine power through Jesus. And so we emerge. We go forth in whatever ways God has uniquely written on each of our hearts. Quilts. And join Him in the process of redemption and restoration in a world in which God has said, I am making all things new. Despite what we see. And despite what we feel. And we can join him. What a privilege. Let's pray. Oh God, sometimes I live so short-sighted. Not believing that it matters. Not taking a hold of the true identity that you've given me. And the power that you've put within me. Would you awaken us again and remind us by our presence here, by our singing, by our look in each other's eyes of whose we are and what you have done and what you are calling to us to and that that is where our deepest joy is found in joining you in your redemptive purposes. Our inadequacy, our insufficiency, our incompetency does not get in the way. And when it is exposed, Lord, may we bring it to you. May we see it as a potential pathway to know your power and your strength and your adequacy that comes through your spirit implanted in our hearts. Go with us as we go out the doors today, strengthened by word and sacrament to be your church. We don't go to church. We are the church. And may we go forth from here. May we emerge from here today to be your ambassadors. In the smallest of acts, Lord, smallest acts of kindness, we love you and thank you for your incredible work and commitment to us and that despite what we feel, you are still working strongly in our lives. We ask all this because of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.